It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Hi, this is Patty Roberts at St. Mary's University School of Law, and welcome to Ed Up Legal. Today, I'm speaking with Heidi K. Brown. She is Director of Legal Writing and Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. Welcome, Professor Brown. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, I'm really excited, too. When I saw the, the books that you've been writing and some of the things that you've done on LinkedIn, I was very excited to reach out and get in touch. So thank you for responding. Um, and first, I think it's just always helpful to our listeners to hear a little bit about your journey to legal education and how you ended up at Brooklyn Law School, how you ended up being a legal educator. Great. I, I started my career in Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia straight through to law school. So I was 21 when I walked into my first law school classroom, terrified. And I was always a good student. I loved the research and writing aspects of, of being a law student and, and doing all the homework and the reading. But I was I had a lot of performance anxiety in law school, but I kind of listened to the mantras back then of fake it till you make it and all those empowering sounding slogans, but they just didn't really work for me. But uh, I ended up getting a great job right out of law school at a construction litigation firm. That was not my intent. My my dad's a minister, my mom's a piano teacher. So I, I didn't have any idea of what litigation what even was, except what I saw on TV. Yeah. Let me just stop you there, because I think a lot of law students would be like, well, how did that happen? And I, sometimes it's serendipitous, right? That's just the opportunity that presents itself. Is that what happened with you? Yes. I mean, I'm very transparent with my own students about I did not have the best grades my first year of law school. It was a whole new language for me. And I, I really struggled, as I mentioned, with the performance aspects. Getting cold called in class was, was terrifying for me. And I was good in the classes that had checklists of rules, um, like civil procedure I loved, classes like tax I loved. But theory-based or very abstract classes were really difficult for me. So I didn't do well in classes like criminal law, constitutional law. So I, I wasn't really sure about the, traje the trajectory of finding a job, but I just sort of took the reins and I sent out a hundred resumes. And this is back when we literally wow. used to mail them and put stamps on them. And, and you had to print them on the fancy paper. Yes, yeah. yes the heavy cardstock <laughs> paper. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I got lucky. I got doing that, that due diligence. Basically, I got an amazing summer associate job as a 1L with a, a boutique litigation firm in close to DC in Northern Virginia. And it was an incredible experience. They really valued research and writing and they didn't care about the, the two not so great grades on my transcript in my 1L year. They really appreciated somebody who could just take direction and, and do the work. So I did. And I went back there my second summer and they offered me a job right after graduation. And so, so all that was great. I felt like they valued me for the skills and the gifts that I brought to the profession as a really quiet, introverted law student. And, but then when I transitioned to becoming a first year associate, you know, the firm was this, you know, kind of aggressive, hard hitting construction litigation firm. So our cases were about 
you know, $40 million um, at stake and a lot of kind of angry guys fighting about money. And so I had to really step into the performance arena, whether I was ready or not. And it was really, really terrifying. But I did that. I worked at that firm for six years. Really great mentorship. I had amazing bosses. I developed as a writer. But I never really dealt with the, the performance fears because we just had to fake it. We were constantly told, you know, never show fear you know, play hurt, all all those sort of sportsy slogans. (laughs) We did that. And I, I kind of throughout, throughout law school in the first six years of my career, I thought there was something wrong with me that I just was not tough enough because everyone around me seemed to be totally fine. And I was a nervous wreck all the time, but long story short, I ended up, I I was going through some personal issues. I wanted to leave Virginia and, and I wanted to move to New York. So I just, picked up and moved to New York. I actually asked my firm, can we open a New York office? And they're like, no, you're a sixth year associate. (laughs) No, (laughs) we're not opening an office for you. You know, too bad. So I'm not a shy ask. I'm very uh, impressed. Right, right. Sometimes uh, my my introversion can, uh, (laughs) well, I asked for that, that I didn't get that. And um, so I moved to New York. I, I didn't know barely anybody here. It was terrifying and scary. And, but I did the same thing. I, I researched a hundred law firms. I never thought when I was in school that I was good enough or smart enough or had the grades for big law. But I was, I was like, you know what? I'm six years into my career. I know I'm a good writer. I sent out hundred resumes and I got a job in big law and I, I it was amazing. I, um, That's awesome. I couldn't believe it. I, and I thought, wow, you know, sometimes you just, it takes longer to get things that you think you you deserve or are worthy of. So I, I went to that firm. I did that. Um, it's a really kind of wild story, but the firm was in the World Trade Center. And so I, while I was going through this really emotional time in my life, um, I was also working at this firm and in, um, in Tower 2. And uh, I ended up actually taking a, a leave of absence that summer to process this relationship issue I was going through. So I was not in the building on 9-11. And um, so that was just a, I was actually on a plane. And I don't know if you've seen the Broadway show Come From Away um, about yeah. the, there's 39 planes were, ground, were, were grounded in Newfoundland, Canada and, and on 9-11, I was on one of those planes. Oh, so I, I had this, um, sorry, I didn't need to talk about 9-11 so much, but um, I had this tremendous life experience of not having been in the building where I went to work every day on, on that particular day. And I was on a plane that same day. And I had this incredible experience in Canada where they took care of, you know, really you know, 6,000 passengers who were stranded there during 9-11. So 9-11 was a really pivotal part of my life and, and you know, showed me, um, incredibly lucky to be alive. I'm incredibly lucky to have these life experiences, even though they were hard. And when I finally got back to New York and and regrouped that year, I started writing my first book. I took some time off to process really everything. Started writing my first book, transitioned to a small boutique litigation firm about six months later, I think, after the 9-11 situation and became a brief writer for a small boutique firm. So my journey through the law firm world was you know, that mid-sized, aggressive boutique construction firm, mm-hmm. a year in big law, and then um, about another decade or so in this tiny boutique firm that also specialized in construction law. So my career was really in these intense, high stakes, high dollar cases and I was doing the writing and I was enjoying the writing, but 
but the performance aspects were always incredibly challenging for me. So long story short, I ended up working on a power plant litigation in California. So I ended up moving out there. I had never lived on the West Coast. My firm needed all hands on deck. I moved out to California. And while I was working on the case, I was going to this gym and a woman at the gym said, hey, you know, Chapman University Law School is looking for a legal writing professor. I know that you're you're you like to write and you're a legal writer. Do you want to apply? So I applied. And again, talk about life, life journeys. I was in the final two of the professors who were interviewing for the job and I didn't get the job. So I'm like, okay, not meant to be. I still worked on worked for the firm, et cetera. The Friday before the fall semester is going to start, the dean calls me and says, we have too many students. We need another legal writing professor. Can you start on Monday? <laughs> oh my goodness. And I'm like, I don't have a syllabus. I've never taught in my life. I don't have a textbook, but yes, this is meant to be, I'm going to do this. And so that's how I started my ac academic career. I, um, that year I I went part-time at the firm because they still needed me to write briefs for that giant case, but I taught my court, plus I wasn't making very much money as a first-year legal writing professor. So I did both um, that first year, but I ended up teaching at that school for three years. I wanted to move back to the East Coast, so I applied for a job at New York Law School. We had, we were, they were launching this amazing legal practice program, great group of professors launching this entirely new curriculum taught there for four years. And then I've been at Brooklyn Law School. I became the director of legal writing at Brooklyn Law School um, five and a half years ago. And I, I was finally eligible to be on tenure track. And I'm excited to report that I got tenure um, February. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a long 13 year academic road, but, uh, but got there. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. You know, I, I just want to stop for a minute and acknowledge some of the things. First, thank you for sharing your 9-11 experience. I, I, I remember that day. We all remember that day yes. and, and how um, truly impactful it would be to have been on a plane and know you would be in that office. And anyway, I'm sorry <laughs> that that happened to you and thank you for sharing it. Thank you. Um, but then some of the things that that I hear in your story that I that I hope the that listeners note that you said yes when, when somebody asked you a crazy thing and it was Friday and you'd have to have a syllabus and a book on Monday and you said yes. And also that you took time off to process when you were in, you know, overcoming some relationship issues and then this traumatic event in New York City. Um, you took time away from your career to, to step back and see what was important to you and, and regroup and, and get balanced again. And it all worked out, right? <laughs> And then finally, that, you know, just dogged determination and hard work helped in a lot of ways with your hundred resumes and, and picking up and moving and just starting over when you needed to. So I just, I applaud all these wonderful decisions you made. And, and I'm sure that your students learn a great deal from just your willingness to, to lean in and take advantage of these opportunities. Thank you. Thank you very much. It has been a really long and hard road sometimes, but I do feel like each each decision I've made, I don't know that I'm making the right decision at the time, and I just have to trust trust it. And I tell my students that's that's why we that's why mantras like "fake it till you make it" have never worked for me because I it's we have to be more true true and authentic about what we're excited about and what 
what risks we feel like we can handle and then step into them and see what happens and trust that it's going to be okay. Well, and as far as um, those mantras you were talking about that don't really work for you, I know that in the book that you most recently published, The Introverted Lawyer, A Seven-Step Journey Toward Authentically Empowered Advocacy, uh, one of the things you say is that, you know, let, let's do it, like, you know, Nike's let's do right, it. Just do it. Uh, just do it. Um, you know, that doesn't really work for you, but that you recommend and said, let's be it. And can you explain that? Yes, absolutely. In fact, when I started teaching legal writing, I never really understood that I was an introvert. I didn't really understand the difference between introversion and extroversion. Although Susan Cain's book, Quiet, is, is the most incredible piece of writing about introversion ever and very empowering. So I saw that my students were my best legal writing students, my most creative, thoughtful problem solvers, collaborative you know, solution finders, were my students who were the most quiet in class and the most afraid to, to do the performance aspects of law school. And it hit me, wow, you know, I need to figure this out for myself first so I can then help my students hopefully avoid a lot of the anxiety and stress and pain that I experienced over, honestly, two decades of practicing law and beginnings of my, of my teaching career. And when I was researching how to process my own, introversion is very different from performance anxiety and shyness and social anxiety. So first I had to figure out what the differences of those, those different categories are. But then I realized all this faking it and, and these cool Nike oriented slogans, I do think it's an amazing empowering slogan, like just do it, you can do anything. You can't do that until you understand what's happening to you physically, emotionally, mentally. And so for me, I needed to stop just running and running and running and pushing and trying to achieve and instead slow down and just be myself. First of all, figure out who myself is. Who am I? Who do I want to be? Feel, feel what I was feeling. What am I feeling physically when I, when I stepped into that courtroom or that deposition or the classroom for the first time as a teacher? What am I feeling? And, and my, I started writing about all of that and how it's so important for us to just stop doing a million things and instead be, be who we are, figure out who we are, be ourselves. It's okay to be our authentic selves as, as law students and lawyers and, and law professors. We do not have to be the same. In fact, it's best if we're not. So the doing versus being was a huge revelation for me. And that led to the introversion book, which then fed into me digging in deeper to the concept of fear, because I would have a lot of, I was doing a lot of talks around the introverted lawyer book and people would come up to me and say, or write to me, which I love when readers write to me over LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever. And they would say, you know, I'm not an introvert, but I'm scared. I'm scared to admit, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared to take that deposition. I'm scared to stand up to that bully in the, in the firm or the, in, in that deposition, or I'm scared to speak in class if it's a law student. So I like the word untangling fear, because again, it's not just this, just do it bravado or fake it till you make it. It's, it's okay for us to untangle what's happening to us physically, mentally, emotionally, because until we untangle it, we can't do anything about it. And I will tell you, I just tried to conquer my fears, face my fears, embrace my fear, all those nonsense mantras that everyone constantly says I mean, every day we're told 
conquer your fears, face your fears, do something every day that scares you. If your dreams don't scare you, get bigger, scarier dreams. Oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> that doesn't work. We have to untangle our fear and understand what happens to us again, physically, mentally, emotionally, and take some of the good stuff about fear, the motivating parts of it, but set aside all the destructive aspects of it. And there's a lot of destruction in there. So the, um, the Untangling Fear and Lawyering book, A Four-Step Journey Toward Powerful Advocacy, is one of the books that you're talking about. So that's four steps, and, and people can move towards that. The Introverted Lawyers, a seven-step journey toward authentically empowered advocacy. And um, you have another book on the horizon, The Flourishing Lawyer. So tell us what we can expect from that. Yes, I'm very excited about this new book, The Flourishing Lawyer. I'm I'm happiest when I'm writing and teaching, I think, and, and traveling. <laughs> uh, so The Flourishing Lawyer came out of some research I've been doing. I recently got my master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. And applied positive psychology, Dr. Martin Seligman is the, the founder of the movement 20 years ago, and he wrote a book called Flourish. And I, I love I love the notion of flourishing. And I want to apply it to the legal profession because our lives are not just about being happy. It's, it's about functioning well. And, and so the concept of flourishing and, and positive psychology is all about, you know, doing well, we want to do well, but we want to be healthy while we're doing it. And we want to be well, highly functioning because we're going to hit stressors. We're going to hit anxiety producing moments. Our our jobs are very difficult and complicated. It's not a, a basket of roses, but we, if we learn how to function well and we can navigate all of that and, and flourish and really enjoy our, our legal education and our legal career. So my book, I take the, my new book, which, uh, I turned in the manuscript. I am going to be working on the copy edits and I think should come out in um, March and or possibly April of Wonderful. the year. Yes, it's, it takes the six dimensions of lawyer well-being that the ABA, that the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being identified, occupational, intellectual, um, social, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And then I add four more dimensions to that. And the reason why I like to, I do this is I really like to start trying to get law students and lawyers to think of ourselves as, as like scholar athletes, or if the athlete model doesn't resonate for people, scholar performers. And athletes and performers, I've actually written a short ABA journal article about this concept, but athletes and performers don't just focus on the one skill that brings them glory on the field or on stage. They, they are multidimensional. And we can look at ourselves like that in the legal profession because we can't just be intellectually fit to practice. We have to be physically sound. We have to be emotionally fit. We have to know how to ride the highs and the lows. We have to be spiritually fit, however we define that for ourselves, uh, morally and ethically fit. So the book really delves into these 10 dimensions talks about the athlete or performer analogy. And then this thing, this other thing I'm really excited about I kind of dive in, what I learned in studying positive psychology is the notion of character strengths. And we all know that our students have to pass a character and fitness evaluation to become a member of whatever jurisdictions bar they're, they're applying for. 
Right. But in my opinion, I feel like we can do a better job of talking in law school and in the profession about what it means to have character and what it means to be fit, multidimensionally fit to practice law. So my book will go into talking about character, cultivating character isn't just something you have or you don't. It's something we can cultivate. And that should start in law school, in my opinion. I can't wait to read it. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. Um, and you talked about the um, kind of the, the scholar athlete um, as a, a representative of the ideas you had for the flourishing lawyer. And when we were talking before, you mentioned that you get a lot of your lessons that inform your work um, from boxing. So tell us about your boxing. Yes. You know, I've always been, I never thought of myself as an athlete when I was in high school or college or, you know, I, I always just would go jogging or do aerobics classes or whatever. And um, about five years ago, I started going to group boxing lessons and then I got excited to try to train with a real boxing coach. So really for about, I guess about four years now, I've been training with a, a boxing coach who was a former boxer himself, former fighter. And he treats me like I'm a real fighter. Now, obviously at my age and with my profession, I'm never going to get in the ring and really be a real fighter, but he treats me like that. And, and what I've, it's very, it's the most challenging physical activity I've ever done in my life. I mean, I'm a mess. My face is beat red. I already have a big blushing response, which I write about a lot. When I perform, when I teach, I turn red. When I'm boxing, my face is bright red. I'm sweating. I'm out of breath. But what it's taught me is how to ride out those feelings and, and know that I, I'm not going to have a heart attack. I'm not going to, my trainer would never let anything happen to me. So it's taught me a lot about the physicality of fitness and how to feel the sensation of a rapid heartbeat or being out of breath or feeling jittery or hyper and how that's okay. Like that, that sense of physiological arousal is, is a good thing. And so when I feel that, if I'm about to speak at a faculty meeting, you know, a scary faculty meeting, I'm about to stand up and say something, I'll feel that flutter in my heart. And I'm like, okay, wait, you know, I didn't pass out in a 90 minute boxing session yesterday. I'm not going to pass out right now. It's, it's okay. It doesn't have to go perfectly. So the boxing has really helped me. First of all, you feel strong and it's, it's sure. fun <laughs> to put on your gear and wrap your hands. And I have like three pairs of cool boxing gloves and the shoes and all that. So that's fun, but it's also makes you feel like, oh my goodness, you know, when I, if I can survive that physical stress, I can survive mental and emotional stress in my work and it will be fine. So I, I write about that a lot and what I've learned from boxing and it's really changed how I view myself, even just walking around the city, you know, after <laughs> a boxing lesson, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm tough. I'm strong. You so are tough. Okay. Nobody better mess with you. you <laughs> give them a, one up. And so. well, that's, it's funny because my trainer always says, you know, if you, if you are training yourself as a fighter, you don't have to be aggressive. You, you actually realize how you can accomplish so much just by being strong in who you are, but you don't have to punch someone to, to actually be strong. It, it can come down to your attitude, your vibe, your words that you use. So I've learned so much from him about life. I feel like every boxing lesson is like a philosophy lesson. It's amazing. I imagine you even carry yourself differently just walking down the street. Yes. Yes. It teaches you so much about posture and energy and the way you, you hold yourself. And I, I learned that 
Now, when I used to get this extreme public speaking anxiety, my body would react in a way that was trying to protect itself, but it wasn't doing me any favors because my shoulders would cave in. I'd cross my arms, I'd cross my legs. I would just, and I would run out of breath and my face would turn red. So the boxing has taught me, no, you know, put your shoulders back, stand in a balanced stance, you know, breathe and elongate your spine. And it, it's really tremendously helpful I tell my students this too, when they're about to go do oral arguments, you know, picture your favorite athlete or your favorite performer, even if it's not an athlete, it could be a singer, a dancer, a comedian even, but look at the way they stand on the stage and carry themselves and, and own that, that strength. And it's going to be look, it's going to look and feel different for all of us, but it's something we can do that just changes our whole relationship with performance, anxiety and fear and, and power and communication. So speaking of performers, um, our listeners don't know, but over your shoulder, you have um, a framed lithograph that has one, two, three, four paragraphs of handwritten um, words that I can't read from here, but I did ask you about what, what's over your shoulder and why. So over my shoulder, I have, yes, it's handwritten lyrics written by Bono, the lead singer of the, U, of the Irish band U2. And I admit I'm a, I'm a crazed fan. I've seen them. 27 times in like six different places, six different countries. Oh my God. And, you know, Bono is a performer who really inspires me. In fact, all four members of the band, they, they got together when they were teenagers and they've been together for 45 plus years. It's Bono always says on stage, you know, it's the only job they've ever had. And, and I, I look at them as an example of, first of all, a team that really works I get so inspired by the lyrics and the music and their, their creativity and they're, they're not afraid to take chances, even if they know they'll be criticized. They also do so much good for humanity. They're all four members of the band are involved in humanitarian initiatives and, you know, initiative foundations to fight poverty and other, other really great ventures. And so I, I don't know, I, I use their music to also inspire my teaching and my writing. In fact, my editors are constantly telling me, stop mentioning you two lyrics because you have to take them all out of the book anyway. <laughs> but I can, I can manage to, you know, weave in a YouTube metaphor into literally anything I write. My students too are like, stop making legal writing assignments about Bono. We get it. <laughs> There are worse topics you could have for your yes. <laughs> There's a great New York statute about um, portrait right of publicity. And I have done that using YouTube and Bono many times. So <laughs> it's, it's fun for me. And I feel like if it's fun for the teacher, it's fun for the students. But um, they, my students have been real great uh, sports about that. <laughs> well, thank goodness YouTube is still popular, right? It's still contemporary enough. If it was some band from 20 years ago, you wouldn't get their buy <laughs> Right. You know, that's what I love about them. The guys are 60 years old and they're reinventing themselves constantly. And, and every show is, it sounds cheesy, but it's really life-changing. It, it, it is magical. The stuff they do and, and the joy I, that you can see coming out of their eyes on stage and the way they laugh at each other. It's, it's amazing. And I, you know, I, I'm kind of envious because I've, you know, I've had a lot of jobs. As I mentioned, I worked for three different law firms. I've worked at three different law schools. So I've reinvented myself a lot, but I, I've never had that um, feeling of being part of something that's eternal. And, and somehow that band 
exemplifies that and they appreciate it and they they know that it's special and uh it's fun even just as a fan to be part of it well one of the things you mentioned was you've seen them in uh, six different countries you love to travel don't you I do. I travel is a huge part of my persona. I'm I've done a lot of solo travel and I find, you know, I wrote about this in Untangling Fear book that what I had to do in untangling my own fear was look at aspects of my personal life. And I tell my students to do this too. Look at aspects of your personal life in which society says you probably should be afraid, but you're not. And then compare that with aspects of our lawyering lives in which society says, hey, you shouldn't be afraid. You signed up for this, but but you are afraid. And what I realized is that, you know, I'm not afraid to walk into a, a all male boxing gym. You know, went before the pandemic when I trained inside, I was not afraid to walk into that pretty intimidating environment and put my gloves on and and do that. I'm also not afraid to travel by myself, and it it makes me really happy and it takes me out of, you know, my day to day life of stress and to-do lists and obligations. When I travel, I just completely feel at peace. I mean, obviously travel is not always easy, especially now it's, it can be exhausting and tiring and scary, not scary in a way that's, that makes me not want to do it, but you're always having to put yourself out there. And, um, I love that. I feel it, it adds layers to my, my persona. <laughs> well, I could go on and hear more about your travel and, and you two um, and all of your writings, but it's about time to wrap up. So I wanted to ask you before we finish, what you predict will happen in the evolution of legal education in the coming decade? What will legal education look like in the next 10 years? And if your thoughts are that it should be different than it's likely to look, what should it look like in 10 years? I worry that we, are not getting creative and innovative enough with, with legal education. I feel having taught at three different schools, the curriculum still pretty much looks the same. I mean, in, in the writing program where I teach, we have done, we've tried really hard as many writing programs across the country have to innovate and, and be in touch with what the profession needs from us um, to help our students get, get there. But I still worry that our curriculum overall in legal education is hasn't changed enough. And what I'd like to see happen is, is our ability to, or I'd like to see evolve our ability to prepare our students, not just intellectually, kind of like what I'm talking about with my, my book. I want us to prepare our students in so many dimensions, emotionally, morally, ethically, having a caregiving dimension, even if they're going to go into hardcore corporate law, like I did, we, we need to be talking about empathy and not in a way that makes those things things seem soft or weak it actually makes can make our students strong so i'd like to see a little bit of a lessening of the worry about coverage in curriculum i know you know the, the age old concern with faculty and i'm i'm one of them is you know, how can i teach all the content and also talk about these these subjects that that i'm talking about and we can do it we can do it I think we need to really incorporate deep conversations with our students starting in the first year of law school about character, about what it means to have character, and that making a mistake in your past does not mean you don't have character to practice law. Character is about cultivating character, but, but what does that mean? 
we constantly just check boxes on character and fitness forms, but let's talk about character and weave it into the curriculum. And let's talk about multi-dimensional fitness to practice law. You know, the New York State Bar Association just mentioned, I, I, I can't remember exactly what they called it. It's not a mandate or anything like that, but it's like a call to action that every law school should be teaching well-being education. But I think mm -hmm. there's also a little bit of a disconnect with some law faculty about what that means. It, it, it doesn't just mean yoga classes. It, when right. we're talking about well-being, it really is all these dimensions we're talking about. All those six dimensions the National Task Force mentioned, then I think we should be talking about like moral and ethical well-being. What does it mean to be a moral person as a lawyer? Uh, what does it mean? Maybe creativity. Are we, are we allowing our students enough room to be creative or bring some of their creative skills that they had before law school into their learning process? So things like that. I, I, I think that we can do this. We, we can give ourselves permission to get creative and innovative in curriculum. We're not going to sacrifice rigor. We're not going to sacrifice content coverage. And we can prepare our students to be incredible lawyers, but also change our profession for the better, because I, I feel like it's long overdue. <laughs> well, those are extraordinarily good ideas, and um, I look forward to reading The Flourishing Lawyer and learning more about the kinds of things you think we ought to focus on. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast and network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.